You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Filmed both in a garment factory and in the workers' faraway village, the documentary China Blue provides a rare human glimpse at China's rapid transformation into a free market society. Shot clandestinely, the film offers a deep access account of what China and international retailers don't want us to see, how the clothes we buy are actually made. With us today is Mika Paled, the film's director. Mika Paled, welcome to Film School. Good morning. Mika, you're, you're up in San Francisco? Yes, indeed. Very good. How did you, up in San Francisco, get involved in looking, uh, getting, going to China and looking at the, uh, the economy there and the garment industry in particular? Well, unfortunately, I have a history of getting involved with all kinds of complicated projects <laughs> that are always very far away from home. Um, I have yet to make a film right here in San Francisco where I could you know, go to my own bed at night. <laughs> I got interested in this topic actually when I was making my previous film, which was uh, Star Wars, mm-hmm. When Walmart Comes to Town. And it followed a small town in Virginia that is trying to stop the largest corporation in the world from coming in building a megastore. And when we created a website for that, uh, we put some examples of where Walmart gets their cheap goods, and that took us to China. To me, that is really the, the other end of the same story from yes. uh, production to consumption of these goods. Now, you follow a worker by the name of Jasmine around. Was she a, a pretty typical worker? How did you get in touch with her? What was the connection there? Jasmine, in one way, is typical because there are over 100 million uh, young Chinese uh, peasants that had to leave the land and get jobs far away from home. But on the other hand, she's uh, also a unique individual like everybody else, and that's actually a, a major part of my film. Is um, I wanted us to get to know one worker, uh, really get to know them uh, as a fully rounded human being. Uh, and what I found is that it's a lot easier for us to accept that, you know, a hundred million workers in a third world are exploited than it is to accept that Jasmine, once we got to know her, is exploited. Uh, Jasmine, in film, we see that she has a sense of humor, she has imagination, she writes uh, short stories, and she could be a girl next door. Yeah. And once we get to know her, uh, I've had people from really from all over the world send me emails wanting to help her, send her money, send her to school, send her on a tour of Europe with a film, you know, all kinds of things. We cannot accept that somebody that we know and care about is treated in this way. Yeah. Now, how did, I, how did I find her? It's more the question of how did I get access to a factory. But once yeah. I did, my idea from the very beginning was that the protagonist of the film will be a girl that just arrived from the village. That We, we meet her on her first day. Yeah. We see her job interview, which consists of basically the supervisor reading the, the riot act. You start work at 8, and you'll be working until 2, 3 at night. And if you're late, you'll be fined, and uh, that sort of thing. So she she's arriving from the village. She's excited. She's naive, and she's really clueless about the conditions and about what's going to happen to her, just like us, the viewers. And we discover, along with her, what is going on there. Let's walk through it. A, a typical day. You just started to describe that she... Uh... She she's working long hours and and that's that's an understatement. She's working 
eight to two in the morning, something like eight and eight in the morning till sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's a typical day. So Let's... it starts with the fact that they wake up in the dorms. All the workers live in dorms inside the factories because they all come from villages very far away. They only get to go home once a year at the most. And many, and... many girls to a room, right? Um, there are 12 to a room, and in fact, that's considered one of the better factories around. We've been to factories where they had 20, 30 to a room, and they didn't even have their own toilet. But in this factory, and that's part of the reason why we got access, is because the owner is very proud of his factory. They're housed only 12 to a room and six double double bed, uh, bunk beds, and they have one toilet of their own. And so it's only 12 that have to share the toilet and uh, faucet on a, on a balcony to get ready. Uh, they all scramble to be on time because uh, they get fined for every minute that they're late. And the day starts at 8, and they have a, a lunch break for an hour, uh, which is when they have to not only eat but try to uh, take care of all kinds of personal things and washing and whatnot. They have another break at dinner time for an hour. And then uh, comes the next meal is their favorite meal. It's a midnight snack. And they love that because it's free. And the factory owner feels that he's being very uh, humanitarian by giving his workers a free meal. Uh, all the other meals and sleeping there, they get, get deducted from their from their salary. Room and board, they have to pay for their electricity and all of that. Now, uh, usually they knock off around 2, 3 o'clock at night and back to work at 8 in the morning the next day. So they're getting like but, four hours of sleep. What you're yeah, uh, they try to sleep during their their breaks, but you know they also have to eat, and you only have an hour break, so maybe they you know they grab twenty twenty minutes of nap time, power naps in between. That's the typical. But um, we've been there when the factory was behind in their production schedule, and a shipment was due in a few days, and it was late. And so they made him work all night long straight into the next day. Jasmine's jobs, just in case anyone's thinking, this, well, how stimulating this, must, this kind of work must be, she spends her day essentially removing lint from these and, and snipping off some of the threads that are yeah, on these. Yeah, right. So well, doing... remember, she's just arrived from the village, yes. and she's completely unskilled. Yeah. So that's the kind of job that they give these people, and, um, and... she being at the, at the bottom of the totem pole, she earns six cents an hour. She earns six cents an hour. As you uh, graduate up that totem pole, how much more are you making? Say, if, you, if you've been there for several years, do you have any idea about how much those people are making? Yeah, well, um, you know, we have a feature-length version of this film, which has been in theaters, and uh, in that one we have another character, a girl that she befriends, uh, called Orchid. And Orchid has been there for three years, and she's a specialist. She installs the zippers. Uh Orchid can make about $100, $110 a month. Uh, of so course, in, from that, there's still all of these deductions. Out of curiosity, what what is the difference in her living condition compared to... The Jasmine, the she. Oh, it, it's the same. They all live in the same dorms. Uh, so she's just able to put a, a small amount away. Is that what happens? Uh, yeah. The main reason that these that these people come to the factories is to send money home. Yeah. The idea is they try to be super super frugal and hardly spend any of them on themselves. So just buy some toiletries and stuff like that. And to send most of it home, and in fact, the other girl, Orchid, we go home to the village with her when she goes home to introduce her boyfriend to the family. And we see that the family purchased a, a rice grinder with the money that their daughter sent them. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Mika Pellet. We're talking about China Blue. It's about the apparel industry. 
uh, in China. The overwhelming majority of the people involved in this, in the garment industry, and I'd imagine throughout the industrial segment of China, is female. It's particularly in the apparel industry. It really is depends from industry to industry. But we have in my film one of the supervisors that says that they prefer women because they're more docile, more easy to control. Is this the uh, the ex police chief? Yeah. By the way, it should be pointed out. And you, who who owns this factory? Let's look at some background on who owns this apparel factory. Yeah, Mr. Lamb is the former police chief of the town. Yeah. And, you know, when I asked him, how did you get to own a, um, a multi-million dollar factory? And he just said, oh, my friends lend me some money. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we all know how things operate in China. And so you can just imagine. But he, so, of course, he's very well connected and knows how to navigate um, the system. Uh, for example, there's a scene in a film where Jasmine is asking her roommate, can't we just go to the labor bureau and complain? Mm-hmm. Because there actually is an office in China for workers' complaints. Mm-hmm. Their pay is delayed uh, all the way to nine weeks. Uh, and her roommate says, are you kidding? The the owner, he being the former police chief, he'll just make one phone call and that'll take care of it. Yeah, It's typical for them to not be paid for their first... Is it every, they be paid every month? Is that the, the schedule, how it works? That's one of the many atrocities there yeah. is there isn't a... There isn't a, um, a, a clear payday okay. like we have here where everybody knows that come Friday you're walking home with some money in your pocket. Right. It's supposed to be once a month, but w- they never know the exact day. In the film, there's actually we see a, a management meeting where one of the managers says um, that these people, the customer, is late in, in sending in the money, and so the factory's uh, short on cash, right. and so they just don't pay. They were very cavalier about it, too. It was not a, any big deal in the meeting. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, that happens all the time in China. Jasmine, for her first pay period, whatever that is, a month or more, was not paid. She was not given any money because there there's a fear that these women are going to run away. Right. Oh, Mike, you're revealing part of the story. Oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yes. I, mean, because, uh, I don't want to give away know, plot she's points She's so much here. looking forward to yeah. getting paid, and yeah. then uh, she's yeah. right there with everybody else, and her name is not on the list. <laughs> sorry. This is one of the many draconian... You know, rules, quote unquote, that uh, the factory employs that um, they, never, they never tell you. Yeah. And what it is, is they claim that they hold your first salary as a deposit. You know, what kind of a deposit is that? But that's what they call it. And they say they release it to the workers when they leave the factory, and they only release it if they leave with permission. Yeah. And the factory never gives anybody permission, so that's that's it. They just, <laughs> they just never get get their money. Now, I should explain something more about leaving the factory and all that. Is the workers don't get salary; they get paid per piece. Right. So uh, during the slow season, and uh, the apparel industry has its slow seasons as well during the year. During the slow season, the work there's only work for two, three days a week. But the factory prefers that the workers remain there because they do need them for those two, three days. They still deduct room and board, full room and board. They pay them a whole lot less. Yes. So the workers actually, sometimes it gets to a point if there's only two days of work that um, you're barely covering your room and board. Mm. So the workers at that point would prefer to look for a different factory that could provide them with uh, more employment. But if they leave, that's when they forfeit their first salary. So let's move away from plot points into yeah. what's kind of the general, <laughs> Get in yeah, there. Into, into a more general discussion. Uh, uh-huh. As was you described earlier, over a hundred million float a population over a hundred million people floating around China looking for industrial work. And in the film, 
there's a there is a uh, some discussions, some negotiations being done by the I assume is the distributor, a British company that's looking to buy these uh, these jeans, these Levi's from the factory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let, I want to start getting into, in, in your opinion, and based on what you've seen in the uh, in China, where does most of the responsibility lie for the state of the the workers' uh, condition in China? Is it with the distributors or the government? Is it with these factory owners or where, Walmart? Or, or Walmart? Where are the pressure points here? To me, it's very obvious, and I think the film also make makes it clear that this is a system that is created and driven by the multinational retailers. Mm-hmm. They come into China, and by the way, in this case, China is an example. It could be Vietnam or Central America or Indonesia or wherever. Mm-hmm. They come in there demanding extremely low prices. And uh, a factory that would want to, for example, just comply with the labor laws of China, paying minimum wage, paying overtime compensation, a factory that wanted to do that would not be competitive enough. They would have to charge a higher price for their goods. So in order to do business, you must violate the local labor laws. Mm-hmm. The system is created, is created for the benefit, for the profits of the multinational retailers. What we learn in my film is that the cost of making a pair of jeans is only $4. Right. That's what the factory sells it to the retailers. Now, they in turn uh, charge us more than 10 times that amount. So more than 90% of what we pay the store for our clothes is not for the cost of making them. It's for everything else that happened since then, such as the advertising on TV, the lease on a fancy store in the mall, uh, the salaries of the executives of uh, the retail company, all those kind of things. That's where the cost goes up or down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and out of the $4 that the factory gets, the workers get $1. So you have roughly about 20 people that were involved in making one pair of jeans. From cutting the fabric to sewing, putting the buttons, washing it, um, yeah. cutting the loose threads, ironing it, packaging it, all of that. And on the average, each one of them gets uh, a nickel for a pair of jeans. Mm. It's a system that, for sure, the factory owner that we see in the film, he, he benefits from it. We see him driving a black Mercedes and taking a French customer to a fancy restaurant. Right. So he's certainly not suffering, but he operates on tiny uh, profit margin. Right. Uh, he can only survive by volume, by doing a lot of jeans every month, because he has no choice. And it is, you know, the Levi's and the Gap and Walmart and all of those companies that go in there, and they're so powerful because, of course, we all give them our credit cards. Um, that they can make these demands. And if the factory owners will say, sorry, you, you're not paying me enough, they will just go somewhere else. And that's, and that's the pressure. That's the, the leverage that they have. There's a very telling scene in the film where, where we... Don't give it away. Now. I'm not saying anything. There's <laughs> just the negotiation that takes place between the factory owner and a representative of a British company, I think is how you, he's being presented. Yes. Watching a film like China Blue and seeing, the, seeing what happens to these factory workers and knowing the effect that this has on their lives... Is this a call for a an international labor movement that essentially sets a sets a standard? My thought has always been that if you could set a world minimum wage standard indexed according to each country and you had a labor movement that was strong enough to make sure that it was enforced, that you could alleviate much of what happens in these factories in China. First of all, there is the International Labor Organization, the ILO, which is part of the UN. Right. And China is a member of that, and China has signed, ratified the treaties, which, for example, guarantee the workers the right to organize themselves, 
China completely disregards these treaties, and China has become so powerful economically in the world that no country is demanding that they comply with these treaties. Right. It's kind of interesting to see that, you know, there are some countries, and, you know, we read on the news today that certain countries are called to the carpet because they're not honoring their international commitments. Other countries are very powerful, like China, as long as it's not stepping on, you know, toes of, um, let's say, the U.S. government, the world ignores the fact that they're honoring these commitments. Now, you, you're, you're pointing to a very important part, which is that there ought to be an independent, international, reliable body that would inspect the factories and would let us know which factories and which goods uh, comply with uh, an international standard. But I don't think that it, it can start there. It can only, as I said before, the system is driven by the retailers. Yeah. And so these, these companies that we all know and love, that, uh, where we go and shop, it's one of those companies that needs to start the whole process by saying, you know, we're going to be ahead of the pack. We're going to be the first company that guarantee you clothes that you won't have to feel guilty buying a clothes or a sweatshop free. And so then a company like that would go to a factory in China and say to the owner, we want you to cost us your product, your jeans, by and calculate that you are going to pay the workers the minimum wage of China. Yeah. You are going to pay the minimum wage uh, as well as overtime compensation. You're going to shut down your factory on Sunday so everybody can rest. You know, just these very, very basic minimum conditions that are in the label of your country. Now tell us how much your jeans are going to cost. And, and we start from there. So those jeans will cost about $3 more. And then maybe there will be another dollar to put in there for the cost of verification and certification. of that. So the consumer here may have to pay $4 more for that pair of jeans. But you know that we know the jeans are not that price sensitive. You know, some people are paying $250 for a pair of jeans because it's fashionable. So, you know, anything can become fashionable. Once you put the industry into it, uh, right. they, can, they, can, they can make the sweatshop free clothes trendy. Right. We've been speaking with Mika Peled, and the film is China Blue. Thank you so much for being here on Film School. My pleasure. Have a good day. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash film school.